0: Listening to Have the Conversation Podcast, a podcast centered around mental health, wellness, and everything in between. I'm Calla.
1: And I'm Leanne. We're sitting down with everyday people to talk about life and the lessons they've learned, all in an effort to connect and stay encouraged. We want to start this episode with a reminder that we are not doctors and we don't play one on this podcast either.
0: Yeah, suicide and depression is not a laughing matter, but our guests found a way to combine the
1: two. He really did. Frank, also known as the mental health comedian, took time out of his busy TEDx speaking schedule, amongst other things, to chat with us and share his stories.
0: If you're struggling with thoughts of suicide and depression, we encourage you to take a deep breath and call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255.
1: And for more resources and information on today's topics and how you can connect with Frank, be sure to connect with us on social media by searching at Have the Combo.
0: All right, y'all, get ready to smile. Thank it. you so much for being yeah. here. You're welcome. We've been excited to talk with you. Oh,
2: well, you don't. Yeah, we, we, that's because you don't know me that well. <laughs>
0: you... Well, we find you fascinating, what we do know about you. So. <laughs> oh,
2: God. I haven't heard that. Well, I've never heard
0: that. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, well, why don't you tell our audience um, who you are and what you're about?
2: <laughs> uh, I am the mental health comedian. I speak on suicide prevention as a workplace health and safety issue or a college health and safety issue. I also speak on social distancing and staying sane. Mm-hmm. Don't worry so much about your mentally ill friends, because uh, we got this. Um, <laughs> oh, and I coach TEDx. You can probably see the slightly subliminal.
1: I didn't I didn't press. see
2: it. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's... it's uh, when I, when I finally found that, I thought, why haven't I had that up for yeah, months? Yeah, that's fantastic. You know,
0: yeah,
2: because yeah, I've, I've done five of them. I've been selected seven times. Uh, I just couldn't make the other two because I had a conflict on the calendar. But yeah, so I speak and I coach and I've been doing comedy since day after Christmas 1985, stand-up comedy. That's how I started. And then I rode that bus, that train until mid-90s, comedy club boom busted, made the jump to corporate comedy, you know, after lunch, after dinner, the rubber chicken circuit. Mm -hmm. Rode that made good money because I'll pay you a lot of money to be a clean comedian until 2007, last recession, 2007, eight, nine, business dropped off 80%, lost everything in a chapter seven bankruptcy. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Uh, Spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. (laughs) Um, Yeah, a friend of mine came up to me after a keynote because he never heard me say that out loud. And he goes, hey man, I come he didn't pull the trigger? Hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed?
0: (laughs) Right? And
2: the answer is in my first TEDx talk called A Matter of Laugh or Death. That's when I came out as depressed and suicidal, by the way. I I was 56 years old. Nobody in my family, none of my friends and my wife didn't know I was depressed and suicidal. And so I thought, well, I can rebrand it from a comedian, from a funny speaker to a speaker who's funny, by revealing to the world that I'm nuttier than a squirrel turd. And it worked. (laughs)
1: Hopefully, you smell a little better too.
2: <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, it runs in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. Grandmother died by suicide. Mother found her. Great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed four days. Uh, again, spare you the details. It's in my first TEDx talk. Uh, it's rather. It's like horror movie. Awful. Yeah, I, uh, I
1: I listened and I I couldn't imagine. You know, because because sometimes yeah. when you hear like so-and-so committed suicide, obviously your brain just wanders to how, how did they do it? Um, I had never heard of anybody doing that before. And I can't believe that, that you witnessed that, not just witness. I mean, you yeah, were, ma- you know, you were fully there yeah. <laughs> more than witness. Yeah.
2: Some, somebody, somebody said, have you ever been impacted by a suicide thing? I said, yeah, the old lady fell out on me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cause back in the day, back long before you guys were born, refrigerators had a locking handle, not a magnetic strip. Mm-hmm. and that's i'll leave it there yeah <laughs> and you got watch the tedx i don't trigger anybody here
1: right. so can i ask but yeah sorry sorry go ahead i don't want to cut you off
2: no no you're on okay
1: okay um so i remember i i uh we both have been reading your book the guts grind i'm gonna mess it up guts grit in the grind <laughs> i believe
2: really yeah. yeah oh
1: yeah we both listened to it i found it fascinating yeah. oh <laughs>
2: Oh, you listened to yeah. it? That's me narrating. I know, yeah. that's when
1: I first heard your voice. I thought it was, I didn't think that was your actual voice. I thought you were putting it on. That's that like, you, you've you got a great well, voice.
2: Well, the thing is I've got a spectacular uh, audio editor that I met on Fiverr. And okay. I send in the raw footage and he takes out all the lip smacks and the breaths and the mistakes. And when I got to, when I got that first chapter back and I heard what he'd done with my voice. I'm like, damn, I'm good. <laughs>
0: Could have a yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
2: well that was part of my deal with the two other authors they wanted me to make it funny mm-hmm. and they wanted me to, to insert the car metaphors because it's it looks like an automobile owner's manual right and I said you two ladies are writing a book on men's mental health don't you think you might need I don't know a man <laughs> they went a man I said make me a co-author let me let me voice the books for audible and I'll do it so
0: yeah I did yeah yeah it turned out so well, so, so well. It was really enjoyable to listen to and, and to learn about men's mental health and how it is different. Mm, yeah, it's, <laughs> I think it's very important that, that us females learn, learn from y'all what you need.
2: Well, and you know what? Um, we did some research as we were putting the book together and we had men write a list of things. Um, their major struggles, top 10 major struggles as a man, mental, physical, financial, whatever. And then mm-hmm. we asked women to do the same about men. What do you think their biggest struggles are? And the lists were relatively the same, different order. You know, okay. Then we asked men, what kind of help would you like? And we asked women, what kind of help do you think men would like? And the lists were completely different. So we figure more women will actually buy the book for a man in their life, a father, a brother, a husband, what it, you know, to to help with whatever issue it happens to be. So that's and eight out of 10 people who die by suicide in the U S right now are men.
1: Yeah. Right.
2: We're kind of a endangered species right. <laughs> at this point.
1: Back to the book though. Cause I did have a question. Um, you talked about, oh. um, the trauma with, you know, f- your great aunt, um, finding her after she had committed yeah. suicide. And you said that your mom had prayed, um, to get that for, you know, yeah. out of, out of your brain and, and it worked to a certain extent, um, But then it did. Yeah. But it it crept back up, I guess, years and years later, was there something that triggered that to happen?
2: Yeah. My cousin, um, the family created a myth that because I forgot about it, I walled it off somehow. And Mm -hmm. the family created a myth because that was my mother's generation that if if I ever asked anybody about that day, I was to be told that when we found my great aunt, she was sitting peacefully with her hands folded in prayer, looking terribly serene. And I told my cousin who's 10 years older than I am. So he would have been 14 at the time. I'm sure he's got vivid memories of the whole, you know, incident. I told him the myth, which I didn't know was a myth. And he goes, what? No, that's not the way it happened. Here's what happened and so it all came rushing back when he filled me up on the awful details so that's that's what triggered it
1: and then what what like what do you do with that because how old were you when it came back
2: that was 2012 I think and then I did my first TEDx 2014
1: okay
2: yeah I'd always wanted to be um not just a funny speaker but a speaker who was funny but to be a speaker you have to teach people something
0: Right. Ideally, yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: And after the recession, the meeting planner said to me, "Frankly, we love you dearly. We can't pay you that kind of money just to be funny anymore." So, mm-hmm. I didn't know. I didn't think I had anything to teach anybody. And I bought a book by a woman named Judy Carter called "The Message of You: Message of You Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career," mm-hmm. and she walks you through the process of finding what she calls your heart story. You know, the one that makes your heart sing, hair on your arms, stand up, the one you want to share, the one that will help other people. And about halfway through the book, I thought, oh, my God, I do have something to talk about. So I figured with my family history, my history, and then take some training, which I did in suicide prevention, because they need takeaways, you know, learning objectives. (laughs) um, That's when I began speaking on. So when I come in, I, I just did one this morning for Verizon International. There are people all over the world tuned in. And I told my story. And then I told them what I'd learned. And then I gave them the 411 on signs of depression, thoughts of suicide, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do. So that they can spot, because you hear people say this all the time. He died by suicide. He never gave any hints. We had no idea. Well, here's the deal. Eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They want somebody to step up, notice something and you know, intervene. And nine out of 10 people who are actively suicidal give hints in the last seven days leading up to the attempt. Physical, verbal, nonverbal, behavioral. So, again, that tells me the vast majority of people who are in that situation want somebody to step up, notice something, and go, hey, wait a minute, are you having thoughts of suicide? So,
0: in your experience now, having given all these talks on that, what is the proper protocol for somebody to bring it to broach that subject with someone that they think is suicidal?
2: Well, can we go back upstream a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, signs of depression. And this is not an exhaustive list, obviously, but uh, have trouble getting up in the morning, rally in the afternoon. Uh, eat too much or can't eat, sleep too much or can't sleep. And here's one you can notice on Zoom. They let, the, they let their personal hygiene go. So this mm-hmm. is sort of COVID casual, button down, you know, T-shirt, clean, shaved. But if you happen to tune into the Zoom and the person's hair is dirty, clothes are a little dirty. It may be because they're depressed, having difficulty getting out of bed to run a little washing and the shower. So that's, uh, now the question comes up, what do you say to somebody who thinks depressed? Well, yeah. here's what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil?
0: <laughs>
2: I can't tell you how many times. Um, what you do say is I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not lazy, crazy or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. Here's the good news. With time and treatment, things will get better. I will take the time. I will help you get the treatment. Mm-hmm. And then, and this is the difficult part. You have to ask them in no uncertain terms. Are you having thoughts of suicide? So let's say you suspect they are, but they're not forthcoming. How would you know? Well, here's some signs that they're thinking about suicide. They talk about death and dying. You catch them Googling death and dying, death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork their music writing I have a friend whose son died by suicide. He had a terrible heroin problem, substance abuse disorder. She thought he was just a heroin addict. She didn't realize he was self-medicating. And he had a notebook. He's a musician. And he carried this notebook around with him everywhere. And that's where he wrote his lyrics and his music. He would take that thing to the bathroom. So his mother never was able to get a look at it with him not there. And after he passed, of course, she inherited the notebook. And it's just chock full. I mean, if she could have seen what was in that notebook prior to his demise, she would have undoubtedly had him, you know, rushed to a mental facility and locked down for three days and let's get serious about this. Um, getting your affairs in order is a big one. Um, giving away prized possessions because you want to make sure they go to the people you want them to go to when you're gone and giving away a pet is the top of that heap. Here's one that's really ca- is, is counterintuitive and dangerous. They've been depressed forever and then for no apparent reason, they're happy. And you're happy. Thank God they're happy. Problem is they may be happy because they've chosen time, place and method. And they know the pain is coming to an end because suicide is not so much about wanting to kill yourself as it is wanting to end that pain.
1: So how would you appropriately follow up? Because that's, that's the hard part. I think too, is like, you don't want to like harass the person especially since they did open up to you you know but at the same time like you care and you're worried like how how would you follow up to a conversation like that
2: well ideally if they are suicidal they will allow you to take them to the nearest mental health facility Mm -hmm. second you get them to agree that they will go on their own to the mental health facility Mm -hmm. if they're suicidal um and If they're just depressed or appear to be depressed, I would encourage them to get evaluated, have a telemedicine, you know, mental health telemedicine appointment. Is it depression? Is it bipolar? Is it something physical that's presenting as mental? Sometimes physical ailments can present as mental illnesses. And then if it turns out they've got something, I would encourage them to, you know, if indicated, take medication. And oftentimes first med, doesn't work very well? A lot of psychotropics. Think of this in thirds. Uh, You give somebody a pill for depression. One third of those people love it. Second third of those people works okay. Last third doesn't really work that well. So two thirds of the people who take this are not real happy with it. So what do you do? Well, they now have a cheek swab DNA test like Ancestry. They take your DNA from your cheek and they test it to see which antidepressants, let's say, would work best with your metabolism. So they narrow down the list. Yeah, it's uh, called precision medicine. It's not perfect, but it it helps you dial in. So you get a lot less of the go on, doesn't work, taper off. Go on, doesn't work, taper off. A little little bit less of a lab rat kind of a, so that's what I would do. Now, one last step. Let's say they depressed and suicidal, but they don't have a particularly well thought out plan. What would you do? Well, what I would do is I would say to them, "Okay, are you going to kill yourself?" And if they say no, I say, "Okay, then tell me why not." Make them give voice to whatever it is that's keeping them here.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that.
2: Don't feel bad; mm-hmm. nobody else thought of it either. Um it's, yeah. it's not in the psychology book. It came from I was having a conversation with another with a psychiatrist who has depression and chronic suicidal ideation, which I have, both of us have it. And we cobble that together on our own. So, <laughs> hey,
0: I mean, go to the source, right?
2: Yeah, well, you know,
0: well,
2: context, well, I've yeah. got context. Um, And you know what? I, every time I keynote, I put my phone number up on the screen, cell number. And I say, look, if you're suicidal, call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline or text the word HELP to seven four one seven four one to the Suicide Prevention Text Line if you just have a really bad day, call a crazy person. Here's my cell number (laughs) because I'm less likely to be judgmental. You know, I, you don't have to explain anything to me. I hear the same music you do. I'm just going to co-sign whatever nonsense you're going through. Just listen, you know?
1: Yeah. So, yeah. I love what you said about, tell me why not. Because you talked in your book, like one of the, you give a ton of tools in the book about how to like keep your mind and body like Mm -hmm. sound and healthy. Um, You talked about how gratitude really helped you and changed your life. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, after we lost everything in the bankruptcy and we were able to homestead a little house where I'm sitting right now in Oregon, where my wife grew up. We didn't, we had just, if you have, I said, if you have too much equity in the house, they make you sell it. But if you have under a certain amount, you get to keep it. They can't take it. So we had just under the amount they allowed us to keep it. But we, we came down here with um, a couple of cars, bunch of animals, clothes on our back. Couldn't even afford a subscription to the newspaper. Uh, A friend of ours bought us a daily subscription to the newspaper. And when I went to the mailbox first time I wept Um. because it was the first sort of normal thing, you know? Um, And... So we began playing the grateful game. My wife and I walked the dogs together and each morning we had to say three things we were grateful for, and it couldn't have been the three from the day before and we, we still do it. I mean, we still, you know, almost every day we talk about whatever it happens to be, you know, we, we, we recently got our 11th rescue cat. Oh my God, yeah. Well, you, my
1: cats in my lap right now. Yeah. I,
2: I'm surprised he's not out here, but they we we rescue cats. And when people find that out, they come on over, get the cat out of my driveway. Okay, fine.
1: <laughs> if you insist. Yeah.
2: Well, this one's wonderful. So that was a, you know, that was a blessing. We were looking back at 2020 and, you know, and seeing, um, and we had wildfires near our house. Right. Within a mile and a quarter. Um, I ended up driving back into the wildfire to rescue all 11 kitties. Everybody else is going the other way, leaving the neighborhood. I'm the last guy in the neighborhood and I'm shoving cats in carriers. Yeah. And, yeah.
0: Leanne, that would
1: be you. That touches (laughs) my soul.
2: Yeah. Well, a friend of mine said, you could have died. I go, look, I've been trying to kill myself for four decades. (laughs) if if, that'd
1: be a pretty epic way to go out (laughs) yeah i mean
2: can you imagine the conversation well why did he go back in the fire to rescue the kikis
0: (laughs) after all that yeah
2: yeah so yeah it's it's, um and 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 the same guy said to me you could have burned to death and i said no no um i've got a handgun if the flames were licking my toes (laughs) that's no way to die right i (laughs) would have found another way to check out and I made a little video, uh, two and a half minute videos as, as I was leaving the neighborhood, hoping I could get out. You know, wow. I'm telling everybody telling my wife and my sister, how much I love them. And, you know, i am my I'm, I'm wow. a brother-in-law Well, he's okay. And, um, you know, a little humor and, and you can hear the cats in the back.
0: They were saying their farewells as well. <laughs> yeah.
2: So suicide oddly is something of a superpower for me because, because I'm willing to do it at any time. And suicide is mm-hmm. all about pain. I can stand a great deal of pain knowing that I can end my pain at any point I'd like, so I can take a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend of mine said, if it weren't for my chronic suicidal ideation, I'd have killed myself a long time ago yeah. because I have a way out, you know, I'm sitting in the eggs yeah. rolling on an airplane. And if I, if it gets too bad, um, I'm done. It's uh, there's a show called afterlife with Ricky Gervais on Netflix In the second episode uh-huh. His, his wife has of cancer. He's terribly depressed. He's suicidal. His boss is trying to cheer him up. And Ricky goes, Stop, stop. I'm depressed and I'm suicidal. And if it gets too bad, I'll just kill myself. It's sadly kind of my superpower. And I'm staring at the screen like,
1: Whoa. Whoa, well, somebody
2: on that writing staff has chronic suicidal ideation.
0: Yeah. And then next, somebody ep- gets it. Yeah. Next mm-hmm.
2: episode, two kids come up to him with knives and they're going to rob him. And, he, and they go, give us your wallet. And he goes, what if I don't give you my wallet? And they say, we're going to kill you. And he says, you know, for most people, that would be an inducement to hand over the wallet. But
1: <laughs> oh my god! And I've had, I've had
2: that fantasy, you know, that that you know, give me your wallet or what? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going to shoot you. Oh man, <laughs> if I if I'd known I was going to die on this day in this place, you know, death by dumbass. I would have just relaxed and enjoyed it till now. Right. So, yeah, so it's, it's, I believe it. It, and, and I also believe that my mental illnesses are simply the flip side of my imagination, creativity, comic ability. Cause it's all the same wiring because mm-hmm. I can treat you, I can teach you to write, stand up and perform stand up. I cannot teach you to process it the way my brain does. And let me give you an example to see if I can drive this home. You ever been sitting in the movie theater. It's relatively full. You're watching the screen. And something happens and you laugh and you realize I'm the only one laughing.
0: All the story of our lives. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah,
2: That's what my life is like day in, day out. I'm the only one laughing over and over and over and over and over again.
1: (laughs) Is anybody with me? Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
2: And that's my third third TEDx talk is mental benefits, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. Because everybody I've ever met who's not completely dysfunctional, who has a mental illness, has some other amazing ability. Mm -hmm. And the point of the talk was, what if we could convince young people? Yeah, you've got a mental illness, but here's what adults never tell you. You've got some mental ableness your peers can't touch. It's kind of like Mm -hmm. Harry Potter. He's different. He's half muggle. He's got the, you know, lightning bolt thing. He's kind of a dork, but he's a wizard, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So he's this kid who's kind of dysfunctional, but he's got these other amazing powers. And if we could convince children of that, you know, change the frame for them, and for their peers, Mm -hmm. then maybe we we could reduce, reduce bullying and, you know, suicide eventually. So
1: that I think was my favorite of your talks because I've never, the perspective is so great. It's so empowering. And, um, it is true. Like I've heard, you know, especially comedians, I think there is kind of a dark side that, Mm -hmm. that helps you make those little twisted kind of jokes and that other people don't really necessarily wouldn't think
2: about. Well, and it's also helping with the TEDx because TEDx is often information that's out there right now. It's just the way the TEDx speaker curates it. And I think people with depression make connections, see connections to things with things that other people, again, don't see the connection. And so that's where I've gotten all my ideas for TEDx. I'll be driving along thinking about something, and maybe I read a study on something. One third of entrepreneurs are depressed and suicidal. I'm thinking about that. I thought, you know what? I bet you it's what they think it is. It's long hours, little sleep and unmet expectations, but I bet you there's a subset of those entrepreneurs who are not depressed and suicidal because they're entrepreneurs. They in fact became entrepreneurs because they were depressed and suicidal, living a life. Didn't with people. They didn't think they belonged with doing something. They didn't, it had a dream. And because that's what happened to me. I came to a juncture where I thought, you know, I'm selling insurance. I hate it. Um, my lovely first wife is lovely, but we don't belong together. I'm not pursuing comedy, which is where I think I belong. And I'm going to kill myself sooner rather than later if something doesn't change. My second thought was, wait a minute. I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. And I thought it was just me. And I've met a half a dozen people since then, entrepreneurs, entertainers, comedians who had the same basic thought process, miserable, suicidal, and realized, well, what have I got to lose? Yeah. You know, if I try it and it works great. If it doesn't, you know, it's not like I can't still kill myself. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. It really is like that, isn't it?
2: It's yeah. And I said in the TEDx, yeah. I did a TEDx call suicide, the secret of my success, dead man talking. Um, yes. <laughs> I said, I'm not endorsing this as a success plan for anybody. This is just my personal story. I don't want you to think this is the way, um, my last one, my favorite. uh, and it apparently was too, too much for Ted to handle. Cause they never posted it was called mental health and the orgasm. Treat your depression single-handedly. <laughs> my only standing ovation. I didn't have to, audition. the committee liked it so much. They said, no, you can skip the audition. Just come up and do the TEDx
0: just come out and do the talk oh my gosh oh. that's amazing and they didn't post it
2: no and i see they have three choices post it post with an editorial note or not okay and i said look just edit it any way you like i don't care just yeah well what i'm doing is i'm pitching it to other tedx events in hopes that when it goes back to the big ted I, that. it'll be somebody different who will really enjoy the you know the idea
0: the nuance of it all oh man it was
2: hilarious oh god uh, my wife i was there was a joke in there my wife hated I said don't do it and <laughs> i said i'm gonna do it i just have a feeling it's gonna hit and so halfway through now bear in mind we're talking about you know sex and orgasm mm-hmm. i said uh stopped i went do you guys know why they call an orgasm an orgasm and they're all looking at me and i go because nobody could spell <laughs> <laughs> And it killed. How
0: many H's is in that? <laughs> That's too many H's. <laughs> yeah,
2: and I said to the audience, thank God you guys liked that. My wife hated it.
0: Oh, my I mean, sometimes you just have to go there. Yeah. I want to know, when was the first time you stepped on stage for comedy? You said?
2: Well, uh, I told my first joke in fourth grade. Um, okay. Not in, any, not in any official capacity. It wasn't a contest. I was just in the front of the room with the teacher. Um, She put my glasses on me. She I had needed okay. glasses. My entire family is really nearsighted. I wrote a joke one time that we 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 were are we descended from the people on the island of myopia, <laughs> which got conquered over and over because they could never see the enemy coming.
0: <laughs>
2: so I had these dorky glasses. This is 19, you know, 60 something. And I wouldn't wear them. I'm vain. And so she got me to the front of the room. She figured if if she showed everybody the glasses all at once, let's get it you out of the get way. It
0: over with. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> probably, probably a good idea but anyway I she turns me away from the class puts my glasses on me turns me back to the class and she looks down at me she goes see you look intelligent and I looked up at her and said yes that would explain all the laughter and she was hysterical uh years later she told me was the finest thing a child ever said to her it was, she was just, so that was my, then in, in 12th grade they had a talent show and nobody had ever done stand-up and I thought you know what because I I've, I've been in drama, I never gotten a good part, you know, drama classes, school plays. Mm-hmm. I thought if I if I do stand up, I can write, direct, produce and star my own little show every night. So, I did. I wrote a bit and I won the talent show. And then my mom insisted I go to college. Okay. She said, "Look, I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree." that
0: mama. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, and it's not bad. It's not bad. There are worse things than a good liberal arts education. Um, I went to UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of degrees, then moved to San Diego, and there is a comedy store there. Open mic. Nuts, yep. And it was the of the comedy club boom. And I, I caught the wave a year later, went on the road. I asked my girlfriend, now my wife of 33 years, I said to her, I'm going on the road to do stand up professionally. Do you want to just come along for the ride, figuring she'd go, oh, hell no. And she goes, yeah. So we oh, gave awesome. up our jobs, apartment, got in a car. We we're on the road for two thousand six hundred and twenty nine nights in a row, nonstop. Comedy club oh. to comedy club to comedy club, seven years, and worked with. What
0: an adventure! Yeah,
2: back in, back in <laughs> the day, Seinfeld, Adam Sandler, you know Kevin James, Rosie, you know Dana Carvey, Kevin Nealon, good
0: ones. <laughs> yeah,
2: everybody who was anybody, or is anybody now back when they were just stand-up comics yeah it was it was an amazing time to be alive and be in the world of comedy
0: I can't even imagine that's such a dream yeah was... I find comedians to be like the greatest observers of life you know so I, I just find comedians fascinating that's why I guess I was so excited to talk oh, to you oh about... thank you all of that, I do. I just find it so fascinating. The comedy store is on my bucket list to be able to go there someday.
2: Oh, <laughs> um, and perform or just go?
0: No, God, no, <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> Take it in. I am not meant to be on that stage, but I am. I just appreciate it so much. Um, I, I find what comedians do just absolutely fascinating. So, well, and necessary.
2: Yes, absolutely. Totally. Matter, laugh. matter of fact, we got together with um, a bunch of us got together. Sunday, uh, mm-hmm. on a Zoom, and there was a woman there whose son-in-law is a big producer in Hollywood. So she was a civilian in five comics, and she's sitting there watching us.
0: <laughs> Just whiplash, <laughs> yeah, like the
2: Brady Bunch, and she goes, "Fellas, uh, I don't know that much about comedy." But this is amazingly entertaining. You guys, you know, telling road stories and talking about the comics and trying to one-up each other. And she goes, you know, and that's what's missing because there's no live comedy. Yeah,
0: right.
2: She says, you know, it's it's comedians miss, missing in action. And so I said, that's a podcast. Comedians
0: mm-hmm. missing
2: in action. Hey, did you see the latest episode of MIA?
0: Oh my gosh, that's genius. Yeah,
2: it's <laughs> sticky. And and one of the guys wrote for uh, Bill Maher, he also wrote for Letterman for a number of years and the other comics have been doing it for, you know, just regular, regular comics guys you never heard of, but are really funny. And so we're going to end there's a, we're gonna have a rotating cast, you know, not the same four or five guys every time and then have a guest on somebody, maybe an old time comic or, or, you know, somebody, I guess it makes sense. Just have a civilian in the yeah. world. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we're going to start that this coming oh Sunday. Oh my
0: gosh. Oh, I can't wait. That's going to be so good. Yeah, because, so, you know, the world
2: needs comedy, and there's no, nobody, I mean, a Zoom comedy show is okay, but it's one comic at a time, and that's what the woman mm-hmm. noticed was, if you put five comedians on the screen and all their mics are open, and we're all good audiences, we're howling at each other.
1: Yeah.
2: So there's that laughter that you miss when you're on the Zoom
1: it's so awkward Mm -hmm. without the laughter just pause and you're like
2: and (laughs) comics are great audiences especially for each other you know if you have respect for you know each other and we and and the you bring it you bring a joke you're working on and we try to figure out you know it's called tagging what's what's the next joke what's you know here's the joke here's the punchline. now what did i miss what can i say after the punch
0: literally my dream job
2: yeah well seriously
0: oh it's so cool (laughs) the
2: the puzzle somebody has said uh, i was at the house at the beach they had a a jigsaw puzzle thousand pieces and he said i looked at it and i realized it was two naked people making love and but you know there were it wasn't quite (laughs) put together all the way there were some pieces missing and i said gives a whole new meme the term piece of ass Um, and that's the kind of thing comics do for one another with a joke they you know, they plug in, yes. whatever. Because, you know, Forest for the Trees, you can't see. Um, sometimes you just can't see the jokes right there, but they can.
0: Right, yeah. Here's, what you,
2: here's what you missed. Here's the line you missed. So we do, a, we, you know, it's wordsmithing, joke doctoring. So there'll be some of that on the show where you bring a premise. So fellas, mm-hmm. I got this great premise. I did one the other day. and Yeah, it's, it's kind of hip. Um, it's a little subtle. Nancy, Betsy DeVos resigned from the cabinet. But now here's the trick. If you can, if you can make both Republicans and Democrats laugh on the same job. Yeah, Yeah. you got it. So I said, Betsy DeVos resigned from the cabinet. Now, you know, if she gets two people to resign and they get two people to resign and they get two people to resign because, you know, she owns with her husband Amway. And that's the old you get two people, and they get two people, and they get two people.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah. the original pyramid scheme. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But you have to, you
2: know, not everybody's going to get the joke because you have to know that a Betsy DeVos owns, you know, she and her husband own Amway. B right. That's the pitch. You tell two people, and they tell two people, and they tell two people. So the comics appreciate that because it worked You know, it, it takes some it doesn't slap you in the face. You got to think about it. Yeah, yeah. And, smart. Uh, yeah, and and. And up until now, I said to them, "You know the sad thing." I wrote that last week. I put it on Facebook, and a few comics told me how you know good it was. But I, I write these jokes, and I got nowhere to go with them. So now on Sundays, whatever you've written that week, you bring to the so show, cool. Yeah, and you talk about it. And it can, can you guys tag this? Um, did I miss something? Is you know what's God? Uh,
1: that's so cool because that's like a, people can learn from that too. It's yeah. not just entertaining. That is so cool. And is that kind of like what a writing room?
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, the guy who worked for Letterman, uh, it was always monologue and Bill Maher it was always monologue jokes. So mm-hmm. if you have a joke, something you know that would be in a in a in the late night monologue, then he's the perfect one to tell you that's a great joke, but here's you need to rephrase it this way
0: to make it land. Yeah, yeah, and
2: and use this keyword in the middle. Apparently, there's a, like a <laughs> set of words that are the transition from the setup to the punchline, and one of them, well, apparently
1: and you got to say it like that too yeah <laughs> like, well,
2: i know because i wrote jokes leno for 20 years and what
1: was that like
2: um we were under contract contractors the goal the dream was that when you know when he needed another writer to come in house and join the guild mm-hmm. that you'd be plucked from obscurity because and and i i turned in 12 to 24 jokes a day in hopes that that kind of production would earn me a spot never did but but it's great practice. Um, I had two jokes in his very first monologue when he took over for Johnny. And I shared it with the guys, you know, on on the Zoom. I said, okay, and here's the first one. Um, guy in Texas got stung to death by bees. This is way back when. And Leno goes, yeah, yeah, you know, it turns out it wasn't uh, a killer bees. It was uh, ordinary honeybees upset over the Rodney King verdict. Because that was about the time. <laughs> And the other one was Dan Quayle said that Murphy Brown, that old TV character. Oh yeah. Having a child out of wedlock on the show, which she did mocked the importance of fathers and then he said, where would I have been without my dad? Now that was the end of the paragraph in the USA today. And my punchline was when he said, where would I have been without my dad? And I guess Vietnam, (laughs) it killed. So yeah, we, you know, we work on joke doctoring and, you know, it's and there's worse things and you know it if you ever wonder what it was like to hang out in the green room at a comedy club that's what the podcast will be like comics- i'm
0: so excited yeah. for this it's yeah. like It'll be literally
1: listening. my dream road stories
2: yeah. stories about the comics yeah there was a how go- do you go ahead sorry
1: well i was just going to ask you said you wrote like 15 to 20 jokes a day does that is that exhausting like are you like really trying to crank those jokes out or does it just come to you
2: well there's a number of techniques you know it's all based on topical because it's a monologue for late night tv so it's all of it's from the newspaper okay. mm-hmm. or tv or whatever news source you use um and also i would watch the the monologue that was monologue i'd write down the premise and all the jokes because he obviously liked the premise you liked the topic and i would try to write a better joke than the one that the in-house writer wrote and my favorite was and uh, you know the swiss uh There's a new company that makes condoms in uh, Switzerland. Uh, You really want to buy a condom from a country that makes cheese with holes in it? (laughs) And I thought, there's a better joke there. And I went, and I sold this one. I go, "Uh, yeah, you know, uh, they make a new company in Switzerland making uh, condoms. Of course, you know the Swiss. It's not just a condom. It's a corkscrew. It's a screwdriver. It's... uh... Yeah. The
0: IKEA condom.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so, and that's oh, what we, that's, so that's what we do on the podcast is, you know, uh, yeah, that's a great joke, but let me tell you what you missed. Here's the here's the oh, punchline wow. that you you know, and and whoever brings the joke to the table, whatever punchlines are generated from that process, the comic who brought it to the table gets to keep. it. You know, that's, it's, it's an honor system, but you
0: pass it along. I like that. That's cool. Yeah.
2: Most I really, unique. really wouldn't do that kind of thing with comics who are famous for stealing, but, uh, cause there were many, um, yeah, I'm sure. and we tell horror stories, road stories. There was a, a comic named Peter Vogel who actually got helicoptered off a cruise ship. He offended so many people
1: that's for, that's for real yes he did, he did yeah
2: well normally if you have, if you offend people on the ship normally they wait till they get the next big port and then they give you plane tickets you fly home but it was so you know
1: from experience or uh well yeah
2: that's another story um
1: <laughs> another podcast yeah yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> he told a joke it was it was one of those too soon kind of a things um yeah on the achille laro the palestinian some group took over and there was a jewish gentleman named klinghoffer in a wheelchair and they ended up shoving him overboard and of course he died and this is on the heels of that i mean, I don't know why he thought he could get away with this i mean the comics have a sense; they know when it's not gonna you know yeah and what, what we do is we call out the comics because you got to tell somebody the joke um so bear in mind mr klinghoffer wheelchair over the side so somebody in the audience said, let me buy you a drink. And he says, I'll take a Klinghoffer. And they, they, they shot Mr. Wow. Klinghoffer before they rolled him over. So somebody goes, what's a Klinghoffer? It's a shot with a splash.
0: Oh, my God. Oh
2: my okay. God. The incident happened on a cruise ship. He's working a cruise ship. How can you not? <laughs> so they actually sent a helicopter out, you know, with a basket <laughs> and took him off by helicopter. Only, only person we've ever known who that's happened to everybody else is you know you wait for the tickets they put you off yeah
1: (laughs) uh, do you you give them a standing ovation for that like a good try or or is that just like oops
2: think about this it's probably 15 years ago and the comedians are still talking about it
0: I mean he made an impact right oh that's a bad joke too (laughs) (laughs) oh gosh I'm so curious how has comedy changed since then i know especially with like cancel culture and stuff right now what's your take on all that
2: well are you in front of your computer (laughs) yes okay (laughs) open up a browser window Uh, type in frank king comedian quarantine quarantine frank king comedian quarantine Mm -hmm. and see what comes up
1: Westerdam cruise ship man says he escaped. No,
2: nope, that can't be it. That
1: is it. It is it? <laughs> yep.
2: Okay. I We were never quarantined. The hotel was never quarantined. But when I came back, I made the mistake of speaking to the press. And the way to sell papers or get clicks and eyeballs is to say comedian jumps quarantine. So every story had that headline, comedian jumps quarantine. So I had people calling me up and saying, you know, we're going to see, make sure you don't never get booked to do comedy again. yeah i've got a a tedx i'm pitching it's called going viral how the cancel culture and the coronavirus killed my comedy career because i you know 10 years killing
1: everyone's comedy career yes
2: but the holland america is not going to have me back because because they got a ration of grief because everybody thinks they let me escape although i didn't escape that they were you know we weren't surrounded by police i just My contract was up. I bought a plane ticket and I flew home. And and the CDC was on the ground in in Cambodia where I was. And they cleared me to fly home. And then when I got to Seattle, you had to go through the CDC. There's a guy standing in my pathway in the the immigration customs terminal uh, in a green customs immigration uniform. And I walk, I'm walking toward him and I get close. He goes, hey, Frank, we've been waiting on you. Because CDC in Cambodia called the CDC in Seattle and said, look, Frank's coming through. You guys need to question him, ask him about his temperature, take his temperature, ask him the health questions. And then they cleared me to go because I wasn't sick. And, but the media just, I mean, worldwide, uh, in the independent in London, the daily news in London, Lester Holt, entertainment Tonight, inside edition. I mean, just, I got excoriated for, uh. You know, for a moral outrage that I really didn't commit. I didn't do anything wrong. I did I did it right by the book. CDC said go. CDC clear me in. But the trolls don't care about you know what the now if you're C- Louis CK and you've been exposing yourself to women and, and that that deserves cancel. Harvey that's we-
0: different, yeah. Harvey
2: Weinstein deserves cancel. Every 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 culture has a cancel culture, and some of it is deserved. You know, Kevin Spacey apparently had some issues. And
0: apparently, yeah, yeah, again, there
2: there was actual injury there. Um, In my case, it was an imagined slight or moral, you know, turpitude or whatever. And I had changed Mm -hmm. my own phone number, deactivate three social media accounts for a couple of weeks, handle the death threats. Um, But being a comedian, a guy called me up and he goes, hey man, you came back to this county to kill everybody. I said, no, I didn't. I've got a list and you just made the VIP section. (laughs) yeah so yeah that's
0: how did that play into your mental health with all that
2: well i you know people ask me about that look i've had two aortic valve replacements a double bypass a heart attack three stents i have two mental illnesses and i lost to a puppet on the old star search it's not the worst thing that's ever happened to me (laughs) um the, the the cancel the thing about colleges nowadays are comics who won't play colleges because you know, yeah. young people get their feelings hurt or they get triggered or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm on I'm on the campus University of Montana Billings and this nice young man driving me around to the radio interviews before the speech on suicide prevention because it's open to the public. So we did radio. And one mm-hmm. of the young men says to me, Frank, you're a comic. Does, are you worried about coming to a college campus about people getting offended? And I said, well, if I was doing stand up, I would be terribly worried. I want to make sure I don't want to offend mm-hmm. anybody. I said, but you know, fellas, I'm I'm here on campus talking about suicide prevention to save lives. So if somebody gets offended, you know what my philosophy is: f them. And they went nuts
0: because, because I mean, yeah,
2: yeah. That's the difference between me being a comedian and being a speaker. They're paying me to to do exactly what those young men were talking. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm you know you came to my speech knowing what I'm talking about, looking yeah. for information and. You know, and I tell it people up front, look, we're going to cover some difficult topics. You know, it's going to raise some, you know, strong emotions. If you are, you know, you feel like you, you know, you're getting triggered, please feel free to, you know, to step outside, get a breath of fresh air. I'm not going to pick on you for getting up and leaving. So, you know, everybody's uh, kind of agrees going in as, yeah. to, as to what is, you know, what they're willing to listen to. So that's that's the benefit of doing, doing speaking over comedy is there's a lot less chance of, you know, uh, he offended me. He triggered me. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, they're comics who won't work colleges anymore.
1: Yeah. So, so I sad. you said that in your, um, one of your TED Talks too, was that like political correctness shuts conversations down. It doesn't open up conversations.
2: Yeah. It's, again, if you can write a joke, um, a friend of mine, after the assault on the Capitol, she wants to be a comedian. She's one of my co-authors, Sarah Gare. Yeah. And she's very funny. And she goes, I got a joke. And I go, what's it about? The, the assault on the Capitol. I'm going, I said, you know, it takes a master's level comedian to be able to joke about something that awful and, and not offend one side or the other. And she goes, okay, let's see if I can do it. I said, okay, what, 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 what's your joke? She goes, another you know the thing at the Capitol? I'm watching that. I got one question. Where in the hell is Jack Bauer? <laughs> I said that is brilliant because you're not talking about the republicans you're not talking about the democrats you're not talking about the you know the across the board the maga hats it's just uh i said sarah you have no idea how you threaded that needle that is brilliant Mm -hmm. i
0: love that yeah
2: so that's that's the real challenge nowadays
0: Yeah. yeah for sure who are some of your um comedian i don't want to say role models but who do you look up to in the comedy world or who inspires you
2: my current favorites uh bill burr yes
0: Yes, my favorite yeah
2: i watch him and i think to myself i'm in the wrong business because Uh, well because you know when you watch him when i watch him as a comedian i swear i would swear he's just talking off top of his head and i know he's rehearsed it but he makes it look like it just occurred to him, which is that Robin Williams. I was a doorman in the world of comedy in San Diego, and he came in, did a couple of shows because he he's in town filming a movie, and the shows were almost identical back to back. And you know, different people in the audience that he talked to, but basically the same jokes. The trick was Robin makes it appear it just in that moment occurred to him. That's the magic. Mm -hmm. same with bill burr i'm sure he's done them over and over and over again and then there's a guy in in england named jimmy carr k-e-r-r okay smart funny well-written filthy he's yeah but it's it's not gratuitous it he's if you go to youtube and type in world's most offensive joke so i i did i typed it in i got him i got jimmy carr he comes out and he's got this baby face You know, it's just the sweetest thing. You thought, there's no way.
0: I think I know who that is. K-E-R, Jimmy
2: Jimmy Carr. Yeah, he had a TV show for a while and he does a lot of, um, you know, uh, concerts. He says to the audience, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to start off very mildly offensive and I'm going to crank it up a notch and another notch and another notch and another until somebody in the audience screams, oh, fuck. sakes (laughs) and sure enough about a dozen jokes in somebody in the (laughs) audience but each joke is topical political and there's not a there's not a word in it that doesn't move the narrative forward and the the dirty part is it's not just gratuitous it's not just dirty words it's 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 really well thought out really well written you know Comedy and with that baby face delivering it, it's just priceless. My early influences, uh, Carlin, um, Cosby, uh, Cheech and Chon. even
0: still, wow, yeah,
2: well, you know, I gotta, I, I memorized all his albums. You know, there's nothing like you know, a couple of white kids in the suburbs doing Bill Cosby.
1: <laughs> I can imagine,
2: Jupa, 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 <laughs> Noah. <laughs> It's the little, no, you're pretty
1: good at that yeah well
2: we we would do it for each other uh, over and over and over and over um and then when i was doing you know began doing stand-up i was a big admirer of letterman and mm-hmm. that's
0: I, my celebrity crush by the way i just want everyone to know that well and <laughs>
2: and uh a lot of people don't know because he's a little prickly uh you know, mm-hmm. who knows the kind of guy you'd have home for thanksgiving dinner with the folks letterman maybe not but um there was a comic named george miller who i worked okay. with back in the day and he developed cancer and didn't have insurance and he was a good friend of letterman's letterman picked up every dime of the cost the family didn't pay anything so i mean you know he's a good guy at heart yeah. mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people don't, aren't aware he and didn't make a big deal out. nobody knew nobody outside the comedy community knew he picked up the tap you know he didn't make a big deal out of it but didn't because the, because of letterman i was the only comic at open mic night wearing a blue blazer, a button down, a tie and Weegins, no socks and khakis. Everybody else, all the other comics, whatever was on the floor, right before they left, they put on and went, you know, went to and,
0: Adam Sandler. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah.
2: The Im- improv opened across town, comedy stores there Improv opened. I waited 30 days, let, let the management see all the other open mic amateur comics. And then I show up in a a sport jacket and tie, doing topical material. And the, and the owner of the club walks right up to me after I come off stage, he goes, you want to be a house MC? Because, you know, that's, you know, jacket tie looks nice, clean material, topical. So yeah. That's the
1: job you want, right? Yeah, that was, (laughs) and I I
2: wore jacket and tie my entire comedy, you know, career because I think my mother, my mother said to me, uh, if you can't be funny, you can at least be well dressed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Mom's got some good advice. Oh, oh, I know. I'm telling you. I know.
2: And I'm from the south, so you know it's it's jeans and a button down and a wool jacket, or khakis and a button down and a wool jacket, or. Mm-hmm. You know, You're gonna wear
1: that on Sundays for your podcast.
2: Uh You know I should. I should wear that on Sundays.
1: <laughs> Channel your <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you know, early days.
2: And I, you know, I delivered, it was like, I was doing my own monologue. And the nice thing about writing for Leno was um, whether he used a joke or not, I could use it because he was never going to use it again. Mm, okay. So, you know, I, so I had plenty of topical stuff to talk about because I was writing all those jokes for Leno all the time. So uh, the problem with topical jokes is they burn fast. I worked with Seinfeld and he said, you know, I, I don't do topical jokes because, you know, I put so much energy into a joke and then, mm. you know, two days later it, you know it, it's no good anymore because something else God. happened yeah you know right so yeah it's it's yeah. very difficult to be a, a topical comic it takes a lot of work the other stuff is evergreen you can do it anywhere anytime again the, the magic is making it appear to the audience you just thought it up that day
1: yeah the presentation the
2: of in a way yeah it is mm-hmm. acting that's the reason i have a screen actors guild card um huh. because mentally ill people are great actors we you know, I went, I was 56 before anybody knew I was depressed and suicidal and they wouldn't have known then, except I came out on stage at the Ted talk, hi, I'm depressed and suicidal.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: my wife didn't know.
1: When did you know?
2: Um, I knew
1: oh, Good question.
2: Um, when I was, I think when I was 24, when I was in college, I was, I think I was clinically depressed, but my girlfriend was going to school on the other side of the country. So I thought it was that, okay. um, but okay. mid twenties married to her. I realized i'm depressed and then suicidal and what i have is um major depressive disorder which is generally not situational i've been most depressed and suicidal at some of the best times in my life it's like a wheel it goes around hits a flat spot every so often and my cycle's three days so boom i go down the first day flatten out the second come back up the third Uh, the benefit of having gone through this so many times is I know if I just hang on until day four. But for people who don't have that experience, they often live in the immediate moment in the pain, thinking it's never going to be any better than this. So, what the hell? Why bother? Very dangerous. But I know as I cycle down that, you know, in the 72 hours, I'll be cycling back up. So, that's a benefit of, you know, sort of long term, high functioning mental illness.
1: So, what gave you, the guts to finally come out like for someone who is struggling but is scared to talk about it, like what advice would you give them?
2: I would come out to people that I know, love, and trust, tell them what I'm living with. Because you know, in the book, they talk about you need a pit crew, you need a, a group of people around you who love you and who know what you're going through and are there for you, so that when, like in a race, when the wheels come off, uh, there's somebody there to help you put the wheels back on. Um, but there's a stigma attached to mental illness. There's a separate stigma attached to thoughts of suicide. And culturally, it's different for each culture. Suicide rates are higher among African-Americans, Alaskan-Americans, Native Americans, Hispanics, because in their culture, uh, I mean, Caucasians hardly talk about it. And right. those groups almost never. You just don't, you just don't, they're less likely to come out to friends and family in those groups. So that puts them into higher risk. So you have to be careful. I had a talk to a Latina at a college. I said, did you come out to your folks? She goes, yes. I said, how'd it go? She goes, not well, her folks came over from Mexico. They were dirt poor. They worked very hard. So their children would never want for anything. So they built a middle-class life. So she says to her mother, I'm depressed. And her mother who you know, grew up dirt poor, Says to what do you have to be depressed about? You have everything. When I was your age, I was living in a hut with a dirt floor. So there's that, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and and I've got a co-host on one of the podcasts I do on mental health. is from Pakistan, folks from Pakistan. Same thing. In that community, they don't talk about it. They were really upset when she did a TED Talk. She came out as schizoaffective, living with schizoaffective disorder, and had had three suicide attempts. And her mother said to her, we don't talk Mm -hmm. about that in our community. And I said to her, and that's exactly why you need to talk about it because you are Mm undoubtedly not the only one and you will give other people cover, you know, Mm -hmm. to come out, to give voice to their feelings and experiences. You, you're the first couple on the dance floor. You give everybody Mm -hmm. else permission to come out and, and express their feelings. And, and it can save lives because silence kills.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So then what is the difference? So, okay. So you talk about how gratitude helped you and, and, you know, see, I guess, see things on the bright side a little more. What is the difference between like turning to gratitude and kind of being in denial? Like, like what you just said, what do you have to be depressed about? Like what, where is that line?
2: Yeah. Well, for me, it's because it's not situational. I mean, being, being grateful helped but there's really no technique that's going to help me through the depression because it's not a state of mind, like, you know, choose joy. Somebody said that to me, choose joy. And I said, unless you're talking about dishwashing liquid, I said, don't you think if I could have done that, would have done that decades ago?
1: Yeah. Right. Oh, thank you. I never thought of that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So um, yeah. So, but you know, playing the gratitude game, it helps to, uh, people with depression tend to ruminate and think of, about the same things over and over and yeah. if you play the grateful game it shifts there's a paradigm shift mm-hmm. in your head it's like doing something nice for somebody else i tell people look do something nice for somebody else get out of your own head it's mm-hmm. therapeutic because mentally ill people spend a great deal of time in their own heads and you know you're doing good for them you're doing good for you and so that
1: kind of takes the edge off a little bit yeah
2: i
0: guess. Um, where can people find you give one last plug
2: okay um, we're um, so but,
0: thankful that you came and hung out with us <laughs> my, my
2: pleasure um the mental health comedian is my brand and if you want to do a tedx it's your tedxcoach.com awesome well,
1: thank and you do, so much
2: frank oh you're welcome yeah, i you. uh, i'm i'm glad i had fun and i hope you get to the comedy store sometime to see a show
0: Yes. I hope I do too. I'm going to make it happen when all this craziness, we can actually go outside, you know, and be around people.
2: <laughs> yeah. And keep an eye out for the uh, comedians missing in action.
0: I'm yes. going to so definitely be looking for that. Ears open for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be in touch. Thanks so much, Frank. Thanks Have guys. A good day. See ya. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we invite you to come be a part of the HTC
1: community. Find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching at Have the Combo, and click around on our links to find ways that you can get involved.
0: And don't forget, you can join us every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Central for coffee and conversation on Instagram Live.
1: Talk soon!